G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We wouldn't ask for much in return, but incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you um, find this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, but uh, um, leave, leave other, other lesser-starred reviews to other, other podcasts. And we're very grateful for you joining us um, today and uh, we hope that everyone is safe with the uh, the current global pandemic that is happening in the world. Um, but today we're going to talk about all things sort of biochemistry with one of our fabulous lecturers in clinical pathology, Dr. Emma Holmes. So Emma, thank you for joining us virtually. Not a problem, thank you. So you could be sitting on a beach somewhere, but but uh, but obviously you're not. I mean, I suppose um, um, clinical pathologists could be working working in theory anywhere, right? Yeah, um, I suppose with all of the new scannings um, coming in, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are now finding it a lot easier to work remotely. Um, we're probably not quite up to that level um, at the minute, um, but yeah, uh, so far there is clinical pathologist still on site at the hospital. So very good, and thank you for 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 doing that. So when, when I first asked you to talk about sort of biochemistry, and so, sorry that must have been quite a bit. Um, like what 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 is he what is he on about? But I suppose in in general, um, uh, it might be good to to um, to maybe sort of talk about what what biochemistry analyzes that people tend to have. A in-house and um, and what the what are the kind of differences if they if they go to an external reference laboratory such as such as ourselves yes so the tabletop analyzers tend to be uh, the dry chemistry analyzers or, or the cartridge um, analyzers so um, I suppose for each analyte that you're measuring the reaction takes place on um, like a little filter um, and that creates a coloured solution and then that's measured um, kind of the um, uh, wavelength of light admitted by that colour is measured by a laser within the biochemistry machine. So um, kind of fairly straightforward in the kind of bigger labs like the one here at the RVC or um, your um, kind of uh, referral labs, your um, place like IDEX and TDDS, um, we kind of actually undergo kind of the wet chemistry. Um, so you actually set up the reaction um, with your sample and the reagents um, kind of in solution. So you get a coloured solution that way instead. Um, and again, a laser reads the, um, the light emitted and um, kind of the concentration that goes with that. So is there much difference in the, I suppose, I'm going to say the wrong word now, but the the accuracy of that is it. What why do why do reference labs tend to have the wet chemistry analyzers? I suppose, um, uh, kind of, like you said, like more accuracy, um, kind of volume and throughput as well. Um, so, um, kind of with the cartridge ones, it's like quite a small reaction on a small disc, um, and if there's anything that can interfere with that, you'll often um, kind of end up with a erroneous result or a, a flagged result. Um, whereas kind of if you're doing it with a, a bit of a bigger volume of sample or something like that, um, there's a lot of ways around it um, and um, tends to be a little bit more accurate. Um, and kind of the reactions happen a little bit faster as well in solution. So does it tend to be more of a like an economy of, of scale? So, so it would be yeah. too expensive for you guys to to run sort of dry chemistry and also no, no 
not much point because you have to run lots of things together yeah isn't it? and it's all very I suppose like piecemeal whereas we can do it kind of straight in one go with um kind of all the like set up all the different reactions all at once um kind of for lots of samples rather than doing it like you said for each individual once and then having to move on so when you're um so what are, what are the sort of the common issues that that you might um have with either the dry or, or the or the wet sort of biochemistry um machines or are there are they do they have their own unique sort of um complications or issues i suppose the common ones to both of them would be like anything that's going to interfere with the um light refraction so um things like lipemia uh hemolysis and uh, icterus they're your big players um, and then there's kind of the kind of rarer things like the cryoglobulins um, and uh, kind of agglutination sometimes um, kind of that can interfere as well. Um, obviously, it it's, depends on the severity um, of kind of like your lipemia, your hemolysis as to what analytes will be affected and how badly. Obviously, if um, what we tend to recommend if, if there's marked hemolysis, marked icterus or marked lipemia, then would be to repeat the sample. In some places, um, you can, with lipemia, you can kind of try and rectify that. that. So some labs will use like a solvent agent um, to try and dissolve the fat. Um, the other way around, it would be to centrifuge the sample again and try and pipette off the fat first. Um, but yeah, there's they would be your kind of major things. So with with um, uh, fat, you could do that. But I imagine so with hyperbilirubinemia um, or hemolysis, it's probably harder to to yeah. try and yeah. And you, you kind of have to look at the sample and kind of it's the things you'd expect to see. So with hemolysis, it's not only kind of what the um kind of added the hemoglobin added to the solution is going to do but um with the rupture of all the red cells it's what the red cells are adding so um kind of potassium phosphate um and if it's really severe things like ast and alt activities will increase as well um so it's it's trying to assess the severity of it um whether we just ideally could redo with a, a, a sample or whether we can see what changes are likely and whether we can make a diagnosis that way. And, and are there things that just aren't actually affected by the hemolysis or hyperuremia or, or fat or, or is everything in a biochemical um, process affected by those things? To, yeah, to some degree, um, the majority of things are, especially if you have um the majority of the analytes are producing like coloured reactions so anything that adds to that is going to a lot of the time um the enzyme activities unless you've got severe hemolysis um you can kind of take those um as being okay because you need huge massive fold changes um before you start to see those being significantly affected um but like your electrolytes um like even small changes to those are going to be problematic. And so when, um, I suppose I should probably know this as well, but is there an ideal time to to take a, a biochemistry sample? Because I suppose the majority of us will, will take one when a, when a patient sort of comes in or presented or, or initially, but is there, is there ideal times 
within the the daily sort of rhythm or related to I suppose related to eating with regards to fat, but is there is it ideal times for chemistry to be measured in patients? The the majority of samples, like you said, we see um, kind of as the patient walks in, and it, it's not a huge deal. Um, the only one that's going to cause a problem is is if they've just eaten um, in terms of kind of lipemia, um, and kind of that can affect your proteins as as well um kind of with the protein digestion but um otherwise in terms of like there's not really anything circadian rhythm wise in your normal um biochemistry panel um obviously it kind of tends to affect it more when you start looking at um hormone assays and things like that um i suppose the the only thing to be aware of is is when that animal last ate really Fair, fair enough. Um, and uh, and so when you uh, are looking at a at a biochemistry sort of sample from from a patient, do you do you have a, a way that you you read that? Um, normally, I kind of tend to go just like top to bottom normally, but I tend to take a look at my proteins um, first and have a look um, if they match up with, obviously, if I've got haematology at the same time as well, um, with what's going on with that, um, and then have a look at, at kind of sample quality and then start looking at my um, electrolytes and then uh, enzyme activities as well. Um, having a look at the sample quality, I'm, again, just trying to assess um how old the sample is um how it was sent in as well um so whether it's been spun down and um the serum taken off or it's been submitted as whole blood um obviously when that was done as well because if it's a an age sample you're going to get um related changes again with kind of cell leakage of potassium uh and uh, phosphate and then um sometimes with rupture of that as well um, and then I suppose, yeah, just how that's going to affect what your electrolytes are telling you. Um, again, generally, your um, enzyme activities are only affected if there's severe changes um, to the sample. Um, but yeah, I tend to look at those last and in relation to everything else that's going on. You raise a good, a good point. I suppose that, um, and like previously, I've, I've I've worked in places where where we have you know you guys on on site. So that's that's amazing. So we, so there's no real delay between um, sending you guys samples or or not. But I suppose sometimes over the weekend we might have samples in in the in the fridge. So is there is there a better way that potentially like we could uh, store samples? Or what would you say for the people that either couring it in or or posting it into you? And is there a time where you think look you might as well not send not. that in yeah i mean the ideal one would be um obviously after you've taken your sample you have to wait for it to clot and i think that usually is is kind of around 45 minutes um and then you can uh, spin it down and then if you take the serum off and put that serum into a plain tube um that would be the best way to store it and it, it's probably good like that for a good um 48 72 hours um, once it's getting kind of beyond five days, if if you've not prepared it, then um, you're going to see um, kind of addition from uh, leakage from your red cells. Um, obviously, glucose isn't going to be um, reliable at all, um, kind of with the white cells using it for um, kind of uh, glycolysis and things. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
in the day-to-day running, whether you submit whole bloods or the other good one is the serum gel tubes um, because you get that gel layer is supposed to separate out the the cell clot and the serum so kind of doing what it would be doing if you spun it down and um, pipetted off the serum and obviously it doesn't always work in all cases Um, but yeah and like obviously refrigerating about four degrees is going to really help um, for the majority reactions um, to to kind of stabilize those until we can um, measure it all. And is, is there anything in a, in a general biochemistry that is that is less reliable than than anything else, or is it all pretty um, uh, pretty robust? I suppose uh, I was thinking just that you know measuring ammonia, I know is, is quite challenging yeah. um, to uh, to send it in and out. Obviously, not in a routine um, biochemistry panel, but are, are there things in a routine biochemistry which are a bit more um, uh, not as re- not as reliable? Yeah, I suppose the the major ones would be um, potassium and phosphorus, just because of of what can be added. I mean, the sample doesn't even have to look hemolyzed, but after probably about twenty four hours, you can start seeing changing with those with leakage from red cells. The rest of it is is pretty robust um probably for a good 48 hours um and then after that um it depends on kind of the like the reactions that the lab uses as well for each of the analytes um so there can be a, a, a few different types um to consider as well and, and Emma, when you're having a look at the so you say the, the results are there are there sort of flags that you think we need to we need to run would you sorry so if there's either very highs or very lows <clears throat> are there times where you think maybe we need to run this again or or is yeah. this or is this real so when do you kind of second guess yourself and probably not not glucose so, um but yeah. but yeah um again like like you were saying it's it's whether you think the result could be true or whether you like no you know the animal's got to be dead with a result like that and um, so we'd always go back like take take potassium um, you know over about um 10 we'd be like oh you know is is that sample hemolysis or is there something else interfering there um like and similarly with really low values um so like phosphates and things um we would go back um and and it's quite nice here because we can have a look at the reaction curves um, so sometimes we'll get um, enzyme activities like say ALT or ALP which reads as as low which kind of if we've had um, like the rest of the profile or the patient's history which we really don't think would fit um, we can go back and have a look at the reaction curve and I think the one thing we're looking at is whether there's been um, kind of substrate exhaustion um, so actually it should be a, a high result but because it's so high um, everything's been kind of used up before the reactions ended um, and that way we can go back and say look I think this one needs to be diluted before we run it again um, so I, I suppose it's it's trying to look at the panel in com- in comparison to the other things that are going on and then to the animal's history as well and whether you think it's um like truly possible um or whether you know that's got to be a lab error or like uh, you know 
a short sample or something like that, or the reaction hasn't progressed as you'd expect. And I, <clears throat> I suppose that would be the benefit of having a, a wet chemistry analyzer that you can you can look you at can, those things. Yeah. So I suppose if you're you're relying on a dry chemistry analyzer to do that interpretation, is is that part of like quality insurance, or is that a, a separate? element it it does it kind of falls um under your quality insurance i think with having um kind of review of your results um so it might be post-analytical like quality assurance would it would fall into um it you can probably if you're interpreting your profile um with one of the like the little like dry chemistry like in-house analyzers um the only issue is that you'd have to run a whole disk again just to get that one like say you want like creatinine wasn't measuring um but you suspected it was because it was too high and your sample needed diluting you'd have to use like a whole disk just to use that one um reaction whereas here we can just do the one reaction on its own and the other day, i think i um maybe asked sort of a, a, a kate this when we spoke about um hematology analysis so, so my, my understanding is in the the human medical field that like a lot of gps don't necessarily run their own or have like dry labs now yeah. is is there is there a reason behind that like our our veterinary um uh, are veterinarians sort of like driving this sort of use of, of biochemistry and hematology? And I just wondered, like, are there, um, or who else is using this te- technology? Maybe the military, I suppose. But yeah, I, I think it's probably for like ease of use as well. Um, so kind of with in veterinary, we expect quite a fast turnaround of cases and owners expect diagnosis fairly quickly. Um, And I think it's really important in your emergency situations as well to be able to do it in-house when you need the result there and then. Um, Yeah, it's it's hard because like a lot of clinicians are very good at, at doing this. Um, obviously, I'd love everybody to send it in that we can assure that the results are correct. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of you get a good throughput of cases um, that way. But, you know, if you're happy interpreting the biochemistry and, and you can pick out where you think, you know, there's a, a error in the measurement or you've got interference somewhere I think as long as you can um, maintain your machine and you know what your machine measure is measuring is is actually true then I, I really don't see a, a problem with it being done in-house. Do, do you most um, uh, in-house sort of machines have their own sort of quality assurance that they sort of go through before each cycle or they or they, or they tend to be sort of more um, things that you you need to do? It, it's kind of I suppose each practice is um, it's kind of up to them what they do. Like ideally, um, so here before every um, analyzers is like is used for that day, it goes through um, like um, you have to set up all your reactions and then you run your test materials. Um, so it, it kind of probably takes a good hour, but if all of your um, 
kind of analytes are within the controls, um, we're quite happy then to start running samples and then you'll get your throughput coming out. Um, I think it's it's really, we do it on a daily basis. Um, the commercial labs where there's an even bigger throughput of samples, um, they do kind of uh, batch control testing. So they'll um, test their control samples and then if everything's in, they'll run like say a batch of a, a hundred biochemistries. And then at the end of that, they'll run the control samples again. And if they are in, then everything will be released. If there's a problem, um, then that kind of holds up all of those samples until it's rectified and then everything's measured again. Um, but that way, you know, that kind of what their machine is measuring is the actual result. Um, I think a lot in practice, it, it tends to be um, kind of forgotten about because um, it's, I suppose, so easy to use. You don't think about maintaining it, um, but um, you need to kind of be running controls at least on a, a weekly basis, obviously, because caseload's going to be kind of lower. Um, but then, so that would be kind of your internal um kind of analysis and then um we do it here as well we're in part of a like a quality assurance scheme so um a lab sometimes it's the manufacturer of the uh, machine as well will send you out quality assurance material so they know the concentrations of each of the analytes in the uh, solution that they're sending you you measure it and send it back and they can tell you kind of yeah you know this is running fine you need to look at at say kind of your ALT um a reaction or something like that. Interesting. So, so it's, it's like with everything, it uh, um, things get to a lot harder the the more you sort of scratch on the on the on the surface of the floor. Yeah. That. Um, and um, um, with with regards to those sort of uh, low quality assurance processes, I'm, I'm sure that um, some of the machines sort of might have other sort of self-testing sort of purposes that won't let you look at results before they've gone through that um yeah I mean most of them should um kind of like give you a result um but whether that is kind of releasable before you've um said that the control material's all been passed um kind of is one thing and it it's really different for each um like analyzer as well so kind of quite analyzer based and um kind of with all of the kind of the wet chemistry you need all of the analyte materials um to be able to run the reactions as well so um it's it's quite difficult when you start getting different companies involved um and you've got to be really quite careful about um, kind of what you're releasing and in comparison to to kind of whether it's passed or it's not um the so, sorry go on no i was just wondering say so with that i was thinking so if i if i thought that my machine was giving me spurious results yeah. and if i sent a sample like with you know with the results that i've got and to you as a as a lab do, is that is that actually valuable to compare yeah. that yeah, definitely. And and I think you, it, for an, a practice that does a lot of in-house, we'll probably be doing that at least every couple of months um, to see whether your measurements are drifting or whether there's somewhere that you really need to be kind of focusing on as well. Um, like whether the, the um, 
kind of your analyte material, you know, like dates are in, like all the cartridges are in dates, um, temperatures and storage um, kind of instructions are being followed and things like that. But yeah, definitely using external labs as a, a quality control is a very valid and I suppose like useful way as well of of kind of checking that your in-house is working. I suppose you, you raise a, a good point as well about uh, about that sort of um, extending um, expiry yeah. dates or, or, or storage. We all try and do it, don't we? <laughs> well, well, absolutely. But I imagine as well, you know, some of the things are probably quite challenging, aren't they? If because um, some of these machines plug into car batteries, don't they? And, and I imagine that people are holding, you know, you know um, uh, um, the, the the cartridges sort of in, in potentially in a in a cooler environment, but not, might not be be appropriate but um so, so i mentioned a lot of these things are more than more than robust what i'd hope so for for um for our our profession yeah and moving on from that sort of quality assurance sort of aspect so with with reference ranges should you should each sort of lab or each unit have its um own reference ranges or is it fine to assume um the reference ranges of I don't know, a country or whatever book that you have? I mean, in an ideal world, each lab would have its own reference interval for each analyte that it measures. Um, obviously, it's trying to get hold of your sample population, which is really quite difficult with um, all of the, I suppose, um, controls you've got to go through because you can't sample healthy animals. Um, so kind of your validation procedures and things you have to use um, it was really good with the kind of the health check thing because um, a lot of those should have been healthy animals um, to be doing it that way um, and it's just trying to get enough that aren't sick for you to get your like reference population um, first but yeah like ideally I would be using a lab that does have their own reference intervals for kind of each analyte um, and we kind of get around that um, kind of by I suppose the reference labs sharing their what um, so what analyzers they're using what reference material they're using and you can kind of gauge it for a similar population as well um, so you know I wouldn't be kind of too adverse to using like some of the reference labs uh, reference intervals here um for say our data um for like say specific reactions that we haven't managed to set up our own reference interval for so something like crp um because we're kind of i suppose just starting to use that properly at the minute if that makes sense no no absolutely and and i suppose with, with that emma do you do reference ranges need to be reevaluated over a certain time period, and, and when would that when would that time period sort of be? Say, say, you know, for whatever we think normal is, and and does do references or should they necessarily change for the for the age of the patient? Yeah, and it's such um, kind of like a minefield reference intervals because we do see that say your um, like your puppies and your kittens are very different from adults 
Um, so kind of up to six months, it's trying to remember that, that they're going to have like lower PCVs. They're going to look more regenerative than they should do. Um, like things like white cells um, and the majority of your biochem shouldn't be affected, but things like bone growth, so your, your ALP, your phosphorus um, and things like that are still going to be quite um, different to your adults for about uh, up to kind of a year um there's not too much seasonal differences in most of the companion animal species but once you start getting into like the exotics um it's a whole kind of different ball game um and each exotic species is very very different from the next one as well so it's trying to find the data that supports kind of like the that they were healthy and that that's your reference interval for that as well so it's it's a bit easier in terms of your um kind of your companion animals so your dogs catch your horses um it's just remembering that first kind of year you're going to start seeing um kind of age-related changes and then I suppose later on in life when um kind of you're kind of looking at weight loss and things that maybe we should start changing the reference intervals kind of from eight plus onwards um but when you're looking at maybe not so much the small fairies but definitely your birds and your reptiles like reference interval for those is it can be so seasonally different and different for age sex and and kind of um like each species as well so that can be a whole minefield what, what, um, I, I suppose I never really asked you about this, but do, we, do, you, do you guys see quite a lot of um, exotics uh, samples? And and how do you yeah how do you go about actually working out a a reference value for them? Because I imagine, as you said, there's there's maybe common species that people might have as pets, but I imagine there's quite a variety of of that. Yeah, I'm, we're really lucky here in the fact we get um, all of the like the local zoos so probably like Whipsnades um London Zoo and we get quite a lot from Chester as well and um, so probably on a weekly basis we're probably looking about 10 um samples from I'd say each of those and then uh, we've got the exotics department here and then we've got um external uh, external places that send us samples as well so really quite lucky on that front um, at the minute, we kind of share um, reference data with the zoos. Um, so each time they sample a, a, a different like bird or, or reptile species, if it's healthy, then that data will go into a database that is then used to create your kind of healthy reference interval. And that can then be broken down based on the sex of the animal and the age of the animal as well. Um, the it's really difficult though because it, it's with those it's quite difficult to pick up underlying disease um so you could be looking at um diseased animals and and not know it sometimes that uh that seems quite actually complex so i suppose you always always tend to um focus on the on the you know the dogs cats and and uh, maybe ponies in this uh um in a sort of po- clinical podcast but yeah, yeah. the, the we, we have spoken to our, our some of our exotics team but then it, yeah that that is kind of a minefield isn't it with the the multitude of of, uh, of species that they have yeah. to contend with and how do you um 
Yeah, how do you even know what what is what is normal for that? Yeah. At that, at that, um, I suppose the other aspect I haven't even thought about the seasonality, which I which I imagine is get, gets quite complex if you're having species that are um, not necessarily, I suppose, and even in the, the same hemisphere as as they would be normally, and how that interferes. Yeah, and and like breeding season changes, you can see huge variations, especially things like calcium and phosphorus, which. You, if you were looking at your companion animal species, you'd be like, oh, that must be dead by now. But like in a, a reptile, a calcium of like six, seven is fairly normal if it's um, kind of got a follicular genesis or something like that. So, so you in, and do you, do you get asked uh, quite a lot of uh, questions about um, interpretation of the biochemistry of, of um, the exotic species that you get sent to yeah, and we, we would always try and um, kind of provide some sort of interpretation as well. Um, whether it would be, look, I really don't think this is um, something to worry about, or I would kind of investigate this area a little bit more. Um, again, it, it's just trying to find reliable like reference data. Um, and if you can't find it for that species, it's trying to find it for a species that would be related to that in some way, and then taking it with a, a little bit of a pinch of salt. Um, but we do try and say, look, I, I would maybe go down this avenue of investigation, or I'd be like, oh, I think it's more seasonally related or repro um, related or something like that. And as far as um, emerging things within the sort of biochemistry field, you, you touched on that we're looking as a um, as in a routine panel, if that's what we what we yeah. refer it to uh, of uh, of CRP in in canine samples. Yeah, um, are we looking at that in in other species as as well? At, at the minute, I suppose like your, I'd love to get an acute inflammatory marker in for the cats. Um, but with the like your other species, it's knowing like what would be um, the useful uh, markers, and it can often be quite different as well. Um, so whereas one thing like CRP is obviously is good in dogs, it's less like it, but it might not even um, increase in cats or horses. Um, so it, it it's kind of there is a little bit of variation and, and kind of that's why for each species we tend to set up a routine panel um obviously more things are some things are important in one species that that aren't in another and are there things that you think we're we're going to add in say the companion animals that we deal with um mainly are there are there things that you're going to think are going to be added to to biochemistry or do you think we're kind of at the the potential limit you know you know you don't see anything on the horizon in the next sort of five years about other things that would be added to say yeah, feline. I or... think with all of the um like your inflammatory markers coming on the market in the minute I think it would be quite nice and if we can do it um like we've done it for the dog would be to add it for the other species as well um the kind of everything's uh, kind of being turned around so that it can either be run on a cartridge or um, set up for your wet chemistry analyzers, which makes everything a lot easier for us. Um, so I don't see why things like that can't be added to the profiles. And then um, obviously we've just added magnesium for the cats. Um, but whether, um, you know, obviously with the new research coming out, if anything 
we find would be useful obviously prognosis um i don't see why we can't start adding that in the future i think there's there's probably a little bit of scope for tailoring the profiles further um especially for kind of emergency or or kind of like the the initial um examination of the patients yeah it would it would be um interesting i suppose like with with everything um it's it's how you you get that that information is it going to you know change what you what you do initially like with that um with that patient or how how quickly would you would you like that because I, I imagine it's kind of the market dictating that oh this would be interesting um let's look at at that but but as you said like with crp we, we probably don't fully understand as well what it what it means for those sort of patients yeah. and and it's it's kind of the request volume as well um at the start it tends to be really quite expensive to like you know if we weren't running crp on the majority of profiles um and the it tends to be quite expensive um kits to start with until they start to become more popular or kind of more routine in use um and the analyte materials as well like the kind of storage of those and it depends how quickly they go out um as to whether it's pretty easy for us to run it or not. Um, like I'd love to get something for the horses, but I suppose um, like the request numbers for us at the minute on wouldn't justify us adding it to each panel. Um, it'd probably cost us a little bit too much to start, but it, you know, if we could start doing it, um, then requests might build up that way. And, uh, and is there uh, you can't, can't necessarily be species uh, is but but are there certain sort of and if you're thinking just about biochemistry uh, species that you you kind of prefer to uh, to to look at their their results? I I kind I quite like the mix to be honest. I, I love biochem because it kind of tells you a little story about what's going on in the patient. Um, but kind of it's it's quite nice to see. I suppose your pathologic or your, or your physiologic processes and how they differ in each species as well I, ca I can't say I've got a favorite um but yeah and and um and just with with vernacular because I think you, you touched on it before so should we be referring to some things as, as analytes so you, rather than um uh I suppose so. There's enzyme activity on there for the for the uh, for for the liver enzymes, etc. But if you'd say creatinine, would you prefer that as a as an analyte? So I tend to use analyte as a kind of a broad term for everything within my biochemistry profile, and, and like it's like each each thing is like one analyte. Um, but it's if you probably want to get more specific, then yeah, you can just use like your creatinine concentration. Um, I suppose it, it's because we mix concentrations and activities, it's, it's quite difficult to find something that's kind of covers everything, if you kind of get my meaning. No, no, absolutely. It's just, it's just uh, always always sort of thought about about um, that what you refer to. You know, we call you know electrolytes or you know what, what else enzyme activity. You do you, you bunch them in analytes is a yeah. is a quite an elegant word, isn't it? Okay. To, to use <laughs> yeah, just a, broad term. <laughs> a broad a broad spectrum. Yeah, yeah. you can uh, about that. Um, you know, no, I suppose that we we use in the. Uh, 
in the in the QMH. So we, we do have some um, radiometers we use for, for blood gas analysis. Yeah. And I know from the uh, um, our um, fabulous nursing team that uh, are involved in the quality insurance, making sure those run. They they do take quite a lot of time. These uh, um, wet chemistry mach- machines they're yeah. very useful, but um, they're they, they very useful when they're running right when they're running <laughs> but they they do take a bit of a bit of um tlc to to do that and also i'm not i'm not sure if we weren't as busy as we as we are you know that would um uh, use that technology because you definitely need a number of cases to make that yeah worthwhile I think, yeah your machines like to be working and i think you start to see more problems when the caseload drops and things are sitting idle um, there's chance for, I suppose, like blockage and your, um, your kind of your control materials and things to to kind of just slip out of date and things without being noticed quite as easily. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you think I mean, we we uh, need to discuss anything else in the in the realm of biochemistry? I was just thinking about with you talking about the. Um, uh the blood gas analysis um obviously because you can get quite a few um analytes on that as well um and it was just the difference um between how the um i suppose your electrolytes are measured on the blood gas um compared to the kind of your chemistry analyzers so your blood gas would be like direct potentiometry um so things like lipemia um shouldn't interfere um in terms of your electrolytes that way whereas um because the samples measured by dilution on your wet chemistry and if the lipemia that that portion takes up part of your solution um, and you dilute it down you're going to end up diluting out your electrolytes so sometimes it's quite nice to have all of the different um, methodologies of measuring things because you can have a look at something and you can say look I think this is um, causing your problem if you can then measure it in a different way um, and see how um, it comes out um, then it can often kind of just like augment everything and give you a true picture as to what's really going on. So, so you, the way that you guys measure electrolytes are, are different to the way um, those blood gas machines measure? Yeah, so we use indirect potentiometry. So your, um, say your sample sits in a, a little uh, cup, um, that cup is um, kind of diluted down um, to then measure um, your electrolytes that way. Um but like things like the, the only real interference with that one then comes the um, lipid layer on top. Um, so that will uh, kind of because that, that kind of is part of your volume that takes away some of your solution that you're going to measure. So it often measures um, your electrolytes lower than it should do if you've got lipemia there. Um, whereas because it's measured directly um, through an electrode on your blood gas, um, the things like lipemia are going to have less effect. Um, and it, it's all it's often quite a nice, just remember that one for me when I'm like, oh, I'm not sure what's going on there. But then if we can see kind of on the records that you've already done it when the animals come in and we can, we can have a little bit of a comparison that way. 
that, that's that's good to know because I, I suppose um, uh, one of uh, my uh, I suppose my teachers, David Churchill, always told me um, don't let an isolated um, finding get in the way of a good diagnosis. So I, I suppose it can <laughs> uh, can maybe potentially um, help help with that. Yeah. Um, but but there are there I, I suppose it, it, um, I'm not sure whether this is the uh, the, the avenue that to uh, to discuss this, but, but definitely within the <clears throat> the teams in the hospital, people have not trusted certain things on on different analyzers, and yeah. and uh, um, and I suppose that is is that founded? Do you think, or is it just that the the methodology is slightly different, and the way that you interpret that is is slightly different? I mean, if a machine's working well, you should be able to trust everything on it um it might like I suppose it would be good to have a look at um kind of what's going on with the reaction um whether kind of all of the the like the quality assurance things are being um followed um in our lab I I don't really have a problem trusting the majority of things um but yeah I it's one it's a really difficult uh, thing to be like oh don't trust that one measure it on something else it it should it should all work well um I suppose like you said it, it really depends on what methodology is being used and whether it's right for that patient as well so, so I suppose it's just more looking at that in context of of um yeah, of that of that patient population and, and that yeah. machine that you're using rather yeah. than us comparing a result from one machine to to another and saying they should be the same which is yeah. which is rarely going to happen I'd, I'd yeah, imagine definitely and and they sh- they always say you should you should never really do that because obviously you might be using a different reaction for the same analyte across like two different machines as well so there's a there's a lot of like variables that are going to affect the result that comes out um like here it's quite nice because we can um like have a look at past records and things and and monitor um for a, a given patient how things are changing um obviously it's it's more difficult in practice um i suppose like primary practice um knowing um how to compare the results uh, depending on where the samples have been sent or um, whether they've been run in-house as well. But yeah, very much I, I would be looking at more fold changes and kind of trends rather than like comparing number for number, I think. That's uh, pretty pretty sensible advice. Um, is there anything else that you think we, we need, to, uh, need to touch on? Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Oh, well, well, thank you very much for your time today, Emma. Oh, no, thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you. And uh, and thank you, everyone, for, for listening. So uh, so don't forget to um, hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you leave us a, a review, five-star review would be great on Apple Podcasts or Acast or wherever you get the review. And don't forget to uh, tell your friends, vet friends or others. We'll place some show notes in the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Stay safe and until next time, bye-bye.